Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X dot com and C-M-M-Online dot com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we've got a little new wrinkle this week to the show. Bob Crow with IAQ Net, uh, dot net is doing a live stream. And Roxy V, if you can, maybe you could put up that uh, link to the live stream for today's show. A little later in the week here, I believe, uh, beginning of next week, the recorded version should be available as well at that same website. All right, to listen to the show live, of course, you just follow that go-to show link either in your show invitation or from the iaqradio.com website. Click on go-to show. That will take you over to the TalkShoe website, and you can sign in from there. Of course, you can stream the shows direct from our website, our homepage, after the show is over, or... From the TalkShoe site, you can either stream or download shows, and, of course, they're all available on iTunes. We also have certification maintenance points and continuing education credits for the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, the American Council for Accredited Certifications, and the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration 
certification, email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll send you out a quiz for the show. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute's website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submit your answer is very easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, just text it in. Congratulations. To Brian Baker, Custom Vac Limited, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, doing another photo finish last week, inched out the competition and was first with the correct answer, which was Mount Lassen, the name of the lesser-known volcano, which erupted 66 years prior to Mount St. Helens. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, March 15, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certifications, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. What was the lowest barometric pressure recorded during Hurricane Sandy? Back to you, Joe. Good one, Chris. All right. Today's show, we're live from the uh, shore here, and we're at the Eckert Johannings Fungal Research Group Foundation's program at the uh, shore we're calling that one is that Superstorm Sandy recovery after Superstorm Sandy safe and effective flood and mold remediation after Superstorm Sandy we've got three great guests and I want to just go down real quick and get them and I know we've got some great music as well Tom Peter is just to my right here he's a certified industrial hygienist and vice president of insurance restoration specialists of Monroe New Jersey since October he's been working with many families and community organizations and uh, uh, commercial buildings on the Jersey Shore, helping them to uh, recover from Hurricane Sandy. He's also a member of the Restoration Industry Association's Environmental Council and their representative on the RIA Board of Directors. Mike McGinnis is a well-known uh, certified industrial hygienist and indoor environmental professional at RK Environmental of Phillipsburg, New Jersey, and a guest on the show several times now. And uh, last, last show, actually, at the IAQA conference, we had Mike in. Great to have him. He is also very busy here on the shore. And, we, you know, Mike was the guy that said, Joe, you've got to get some guys that are actually out in the field doing this work for this program. So that's what we did. They're both here at this conference, but also doing a lot of work on the shore. And over to my left is Pete Consigli, another great friend of the show, frequent contributor, and the restoration industry's global watchdog. He's also the RIA's, uh, you're an honorary member of the RIA, and he represents the RIA here at the show. So great to have him, the global watchdog. All right, let's uh, let's start with, wait, you want to start with the questions, Cliff? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can. Wait, well, I, I forgot. We have some music for the guys. <laughs> oh, the guys, oh, all right. Oh, the guys, right. 
you know, as remediators. I mean, how many times did we deal with the same thing 35 years ago? And there, there was, I mean, there was mold 35 years ago. There was muck. There, you know, there were sewers. There were the same contaminants that we have today. And where was anyone telling us that, you know, you know, all of a sudden it became hazardous now, and it what in the mold wasn't hazardous yeah. then. I mean, you know, I mean, my, I know Mike is going to talk about this, and you know, we don't want to steal right, Mike's thunder, right, but right. since you already, you know, he, I mean, <laughs> what the, the huge, the huge, it's impossible to steal thunder. <laughs> the huge uh, difference with this storm versus uh, most of the others is the fact that it was a cold weather storm, and that impacts drying. And Mike will talk more about that, and he, and he gave a real, some excellent points in his presentation on that. But outside of, you know, the wind, the velocity, the water entering the buildings, the mucking, the gutting, you know, that, the risk, the hazards, I mean, those don't change wherever the storm is. They're the same. And, um, but, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the bright side, there, there is some good information. It is coming out of FEMA. It is coming out of agencies. They are reinforcing the need to dry things, the need to use instrumentation to verify that things are dry. This is a good thing because that's something that was lacking for many years and there's huge exposure from that. Uh, you know, people go through all this uh, work and this energy, they close everything up, and then the problem, you know, reoccurs, and then that, that, that creates, you know, big issues. So that, that's a good message coming from the government. I, I think well, I want to turn it over to the other guys, but we do want to mention that we had people here from New York City. Uh, the Department of Health was here. OSHA was here. Uh, FEMA wasn't here, but we also were missing a few other government officials, and the, uh, my understanding was it was partly to do with travel being cut because of the sequester. So I don't know how much that had to do with them not being here. But I do think we should acknowledge, especially uh, the New York City uh, gentleman from the Department of Health in New York City. I thought he was pretty, you know, yeah. he was pretty brave to get up there and. Uh, he, well, he's been he's been a long a long term supporter, and also, but there, there was a one gentleman from URS who's the FEMA government contractor, and he did present. Uh, some of the information coming out of FEMA that maybe we'll talk about later. So it kind of indirectly was represented of FEMA because they, they worked through the large engineering contractors, that, that gentleman from URS. And the other gentleman from New York, uh, I was talking with Cliff about this just before we get started, is um, so much came up about the unions, and there were two representatives there that represented large groups of the union workers, and they have all the same issues, you know, uh, with the protection and uh, and everything else, uh, you know, they want that information to basically come, you know, come from the authorities. It was Chris D'Andrea who was yeah, here from New York City. Great, yeah. they did a great job up there. Let's turn it over to one of the guys in the field, Tom Peter. Tom, you're out in the field. Um, what were your thoughts on the conference compared to what you're seeing in the field and uh, in general? Well, overall, I think they are trying to convey the emphasis of worker safety, especially with the volunteer groups that are out there that are not protected or not educated on how to protect themselves. Uh, we're a professional remediation firm. We know how to protect our workers. We, we train our workers. But we see that also. You see, I drive through neighborhoods. You see people are in desperate moments where they have to just get their wet stuff out of their homes. Um, now things are getting moldy. They still need to protect themselves as they do the cleanup and prepare for construction. So I think the emphasis of this conference many people have spoke about is the worker protection and the safety, but the emphasis was on the, the fungal growth and mold, and some people discuss other hazards, electrical hazards, as well as bacterial hazards. That's a great point, Tom. I'm glad. It's so nice to have a diverse group here and people see things from a different viewpoint. I Now that you mention that, yeah, there was a lot of talk, especially from the OSHA folks, about 
worker protection, health and safety issues, and particularly it seems like in this case, there's a lot of volunteer people coming in. I don't know if it's more than Katrina. You know, Cliff may know better than me. Pete, you may know better than me. But there are a lot of volunteers coming in. You know, I, I think the one comment, too, that, that I never really thought about was the fact that there were fatalities. Like the ocean yeah. person mentioned that there were fatalities and that you know, it wasn't necessarily from cleaning up mold, but it was from being hit by vehicles and, and people falling and, and so on and so forth. But... Yeah, I took yeah, a note on that. There were, I believe he said, 12, 12 fatalities yeah, in 12, the area. Mike, let's turn it over to you yeah. get your impressions. Now, I know sometimes you're at a loss for words, Mike, but let's see if you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been known to be a little uh, nervous uh, in front of large crowds. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, my overall impression was uh, there was too much emphasis on fungi, which is going to happen at the Jersey Shore. It's inevitable because... Uh, the biggest deal was Sandy was a storm that was 900 miles wide and just devastated everything. And, I mean, Tom and I were right at ground zero. There's houses floating in Barnegat Bay that were taken off their foundations. There's houses uh, that were big, beautiful 40-room mansions on the beach in Maniloking that are now gone, and the property they sat on are part of the Atlantic Ocean. So, I mean, th this is absolutely a devastating storm. There wasn't enough resources. There wasn't enough respirators. There wasn't enough anything. There wasn't enough trained workers, trained people, to, to handle the magnitude of this storm. You know, there, there's a lot of do-it-yourselfers. They, they come down and see their house, and, my God, you know, they run in there and start tearing stuff out. And, you know, and, and you can't blame them. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I wish the remedial efforts would have got as much attention on the TV and in the newspapers as the fact that the storm was coming. Um, but, uh, you know, mold is the least of the worries, uh, you know, like Joe said, there was 12 fatalities, and I thought there was four others directly related. Nobody was talking about, you know, safety issues like walking into a building that's off its foundation that the roof might collapse on you. You know, the electrical, you know, electrical wasn't too much of a big deal initially because there was there no electric. <laughs> there was nothing to plug into, you know. There was no utility. So, uh, you know, gas lines were broken. Street, you know, the infrastructure was just totally devastated. So, um, you know, this, and like Pete said, this is a different kind of hurricane. I have pictures of Barnegat Bay that was, Barnegat Bay is brackish water that was frozen because it was about 12 or 8 degrees overnight. Uh, you know, you could walk out on the bay. Uh, you know, you can't try a house in cold weather the way you try a house down in Florida. And a lot of these folks coming up from the hinterlands of Florida and Louisiana and wherever, coming up with, you know, dehumidifiers, which are not going to work in cold weather. You know, we dry buildings in cold weather the same way we dry clothes. We don't put them in our refrigerator. We put them in our washing, uh, in our washing machine. We put them in our dryer, and we heat things up. You know, we have to heat our buildings up to dry them, and then these, you know, uh, dehumidifiers are work better. But, you know, the least of the worries right now is, is mold. Mold is going to be inevitable because there's been too much lag between the water event, getting power, getting folks in there, uh, and, you know, beginning to dry the houses out. I, I haven't tested one house yet that was dry, yum. My standard was 15% for wood. Uh, if it's 15% or less, good. You're good to go to rebuild. I haven't done any clearance uh, assessments yet for mold remediation because the houses aren't even rebuilt yet. You know, they're still working. Uh, so my points are nobody's remediating crawl spaces the right way. Nobody's drying houses well. Uh, no, not enough resources is basically it. The storm was just too gigantic. So, uh, you know, we, we can learn from this. But, uh, you know, the cool thing about Sandy, if you want to look at it, you know, we're Jersey strong. We'll be back. And uh, that that's 
what's going to happen, just like down in New Orleans, anywhere else, we'll bounce back. And that, that's, that's an uplifting message that I'm getting here. That, that seemed to be a theme throughout that people felt Jersey will be back. I, let me, I didn't go over my impressions too much, but I wanted to bring up something I was impressed by that I want to ask uh, Tom and Mike about. One of the questions from uh, actually Steve Teams, who was in the audience, when the New York City guy was up there and they were talking, I believe it was New York City, it doesn't matter, we were talking about guidelines from the government. And one of the recommendations you'll see over and over again is to wear an N95 respirator with goggles. And Steve got up and said, that's just, it's not a practical recommendation, that you can't put two things on the bridge of your nose, the, the respirator or the, and the goggles, and that it causes too many problems and there must be a better recommendation. I just want to get, Tom, you're a remediation contractor. You're out there all the time. I know your guys have the right equipment, right. but for those that don't, what would you recommend to remedy that problem? <coughs> I understand their recommendation for eye protection and respiratory protection. Um, and it's hard to do both with certain types of materials. Uh, some some masks will fit, and then you can wear uh, safety glasses instead of goggles to give you some sort of eye protection from impact, but not necessarily from splashing. Um, a face shield is good, but the problem is, is where are these people going to buy face shields? You know, that fit over in front of their mask. You know, that's the ideal um, scenario to have a face shield and a mask. This way they have visibility without fogging, and they have the protection that they need. They were handing out, were like giving out N95s and goggles in some yeah, places. Yeah. You would think, you know, let's, I mean, it, it came to me. I teach people mold remediation. I talk about it all the time, that that just doesn't work very well. Mike, any comment on that particular subject? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are people in philosophical circles that say the good is the enemy of the better, and the better is the enemy of the best. And, you know, initial response the hazards are splashes of Category 3 black water with the pathogens and the protozoans. Uh, it's not an inhalation hazard as much as it's a you know, mucous membrane hazard. So if it comes down to a choice between wearing you know, splash-proof goggles or N95, or, yeah, we can get N100 disposable respirators now, too. So my recommendation for that is N100. But you know, if I'm more worried about splashing in my eyes you know, from initial flood response, then I'm going to wear the goggles, and I don't really need a respirator at that point in time because it's not necessarily an inhalation hazard. When you get down the line to the mold remediation activities and you're dealing more with inhalation hazards, then maybe the situation is reversed. Um, you know, if you're, I do have to give credit. The restoration companies did a good job. Their workers, by and large, were protected. They had the right equipment, and to some extent, anyway, at least the local guys did. And uh, But, you know. If it comes down to either or, I'm protecting my eyes when I'm working with the splashing hazard, and if it's more of a respiratory hazard, I'll protect, you know, I'll wear appropriate respiratory protection. So that's my take on it. Okay. Guys, I, I know Cliff and I picked up a few things we hadn't heard before, and I just mentioned one. I'd like to know, Mike, anything that you picked up here that you hadn't heard before was reinforced or something you'd just like to make sure people hear? Well, one of the things that was not widespread, I, I had known about it uh, because I, I use these things, but a lot of folks were not aware that there are large sponge swabs available to cover large areas uh, to check for sewage-related pathogens or things like that. So it was uh, a lab at the, the exhibits, and I know I'm not allowed to mention that. No, go ahead. You can't. Dr. Waitang has invented these large sponge swabs that cover a lot of territory, and when I take samples of 
surface samples. I don't sample a square inch or anything. I just want to cover a lot of territory. So these large sponge swabs help me. And, you know, the, the clearance for sewage pathogens is easy. Even CIHs can figure it out. If the pathogens are present, you flunk. And right. If they're not there, you pass. So, right. you know, the more territory I can cover with one swab, the better my clients feel because I'm not killing them with, you know, analytical builds. The better I feel because, you know, I, I can cover a lot of territory. And I, you know, it's a lot more useful tool than the little, you know, strep throat swabs that we're all used to. So that's one of the cool things I did see here. Great. Oh, um, I, I did see uh, foam applicators as well for uh, uh, yeah. cleaning uh, these things. Uh, I'm a big fan of foam because it gets in the nooks and crannies, like uh, the Thomas's English muffin guy say. So I did <laughs> see that. Well, I mean, Paul, could you, uh, maybe, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are not familiar with foaming and that as an alternative to traditional dry remediation. And I think that's something that you've been doing a lot of, and that we call it the Pittsburgh Protocol. Somehow it morphed into the Sandy Solution. So it's the uh, New Jersey Protocol. Uh, okay, we, right. can, we can talk about that on a later show. Uh, but anyway, Cliff did a show on the Pittsburgh Protocol, if you want to learn more about that later. But I'd just like to get your impression on foaming and then using wet methods, deep cleaning methods on these types of projects. Right. Right after the flood when the whole structure is soaking wet, I mean, you can use any kind of wet method, power washing at that point uh, with a detergent to get rid of the filth and the contaminants. After um, several days or weeks, the building starts drying out, and at that point, you don't want to add too much more water to it as it's drying out. So that's where the foam comes into play. The foam uh, creates um, a solution that, that's effective for kill uh, bacteria or mold and helps remove the filth from the crevices with the minimum use of water. So that's why I like the foam products. Uh, there's various foam products out there that you have containers that are battery operated. So you can use them in um, a, a house that has no power. They have, they have hand pumped operators and they have the, the obviously the compressed air and the uh, electrical ones. And we like the compressed air ones because uh, you could get um, a high velocity out of it and you could uh, foam a whole floor framing in 10 minutes of, you know, a house where, you know, traditionally people go in there with a hand pump sprayer and it takes a while and you don't know your coverage. The main thing is seeing visible coverage of the, the foam. Cliff, you want to follow up on that? I know. Oh, if you would, how much water does that process that you worked on, the Pittsburgh Protocol, how much water is actually used? And Pittsburgh Okay, and, and let me answer the question and then make a comment. In Pittsburgh Protocol, including foaming, including an initial antimicrobial application, foaming and pressure washing on heavily fungally contaminated wood, four ounces per square foot, okay, is, is based on the measurements that we did on this on severe project. The thing that angered me at this, anger and raged me at this particular uh, event or the disservice to the industry that the words no water have caused being in the S520 standard, okay? And the fact that they took a tool which was simpler and, and you know, number one, the workers are protected when we use foam. It suppresses it. So, uh, there are just so many advantages uh, cost, it, it, it's much less expensive to do it. It's more thorough. 
in terms of the remediation, but the, the service that those words in the industry standard uh, have caused. I've meant to hear all these people uh, repeating it and, and quoting it and no added water and no added water. And, and it, it, it's just millions and millions and millions of dollars were, I think, wasted uh, unnecessarily when just common sense would have prevailed over uh, you know, the ideas of some PhD someplace. S520 is being revised. I understand. It is. And, well, and it was but, revised but, since but, then. But, I mean. but the issues that it's being revised are based on the process uh, by which the document was was, was prepared. You know, that's where the that, that's where the deficiencies. If it was, was being revised in in advance of that, yeah, believe me. Okay. They were revising it, and actually, in the second version, they took some of that no water out and made it a tool in the toolbox to some degree, but still. Your point is dead on. A lot of people, based on that early document, started to parrot that you should never use water on a mold remediation project, never add water to a mold remediation project. And uh, we've got the people right here that are out in the field. You sometimes, like you've said, Cliff, sometimes it needs to get wetter to get better. Right. You know, and I clean. need the water to go where your flood water went right. up to get to this location. You know, if you want to get rid of the impacts of the flood water, you got to get your disinfecting and decontaminating solutions to go to the same location. So you can't do that unless it's a, a water-based or a, a solution right. as opposed to you know something dry. You know, remediators, I don't have your experience in in safety and, and regulatory and so on and so forth to tell you how to do your job. And you know that's the one thing that you know I appreciated that, that you said in your presentation that. You're interested in results, and you're going to tell the contractor, get me the results, and do it your way. Absolutely. So many times it's the opposite of that. It's someone who knows less about our business than we do telling us how to do your job. And you know, sometimes the, uh, you know, the results are preordained by a bad specification. I just Before we go to halftime, which we have to do in a moment, I do want to emphasize something that I think was a, a real positive of this this whole gathering, it brought a lot of different people together. These people here, we've got government people here, we've got people that are manufacturers, we've got some industry representatives like people. Public advocates too. Public yes. advocates. I mean, that's the first time researchers, PhD doctors, MDs, there's probably five or six MDs here at this conference. So um, it may not have been perfect, and they had to put it together quickly. And there was another problem that I know was difficult for for Dr. Johanning and others, but uh, they did a great job of bringing together the key stakeholders. And I think by doing things like this show with these gentlemen and following up with, which I know Pete will do with the RIA folks, and there are a few indoor air quality association people here, a couple people that are pretty active in other industry organizations. I, I do believe that we will have some good results that come about as the result of putting these people together. So I just want to make sure everybody uh, listening out there recognizes that the intentions were very good here, and it brought together a lot of great people. And I do believe the final outcome, the papers that will be put out, are going to be tremendous. And I know they're looking at Dr. Chin Yang, Dr. Chin Yang. He's not going to let anything go out that isn't right on, you know, so I, I have a lot of confidence that this will be a great 
event that will help the industry in the future. It's just uh, it's tough when you get all these folks together in the same room. Let's let's do a little. Uh, we've got to take a break. We've got to thank our sponsors. We'll be back in about a minute, a minute and a half, with the second half of our interview. We've got Mike McGinnis, Tom Peter. We've got we got the, the Z Man. We we got Pete Consigli, and and it's been a great show. And we got Radio Joe. We got the Radio. Hey, and I'm Radio Joe, and we'll be back from the Jersey Shore in about a minute and a half. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we are back with the second half of our show, and I, you know, I was so into the conversation here, I neglected a few of the questions that came in. Let's go to a couple of these questions there, Cliff. What do you think? Yeah, Joe, what I'd like to do is, that, is pose this one to Tom and Mike because, uh, you know, their safety experience. Uh, the, the question is, what about full-face PAPRs instead of this combination of um, mask and goggles? Before the acronym police get us, powered air purifying respirators. Right. Yeah, they work just fine if you can get them. Right. They're very expensive, too, you know, um, and to operate and maintain them. Uh, obviously, yeah, they're the best protection you could wear. It gives you full face eye protection. It gives you ventilation under a positive pressure in the face mask. And the cartridges that you use can protect you from uh, fine particulates to organic vapors. Yeah. How much would that cost? Those things, they, they're like $500 or more. Okay. More. And then you have to batteries. Then you have to do fit testing and, and yeah, so on and so yeah. forth. And so. I think that the one thing perhaps that the uh, person that posed the question didn't realize is we're talking about protecting many, many volunteers right. uh, yeah. as opposed to workers. Yeah, we're, we're talking about, again, 
something on a massive scale. If, if it was a, a job in somebody's house with one sewage backup and a one, one restoration company, full-page APRs are the way to go. But uh, you know, the, the real world, uh, you got it, it's just mind-boggling the scale of this, this hurricane, this event. All right, it looks like the other questions were answered by other listeners, which is one of the nice things. Or about will this. be as or, we or go. Or will be as we go along. That was great. Uh, all right. Uh, before we move further, Pete, any other comments on the first half? Um, well, the, the only thing I wanted to mention that, that no, none of the other panels didn't really emphasize, I think that the using those face shields, which are relatively inexpensive, with the uh, with the N95 or the 100, you know, respirator, a little bit better quality, um, I think those are doable and those are easy to get. And there there is this all-hands volunteer that came up uh, in the presentation that's doing some volunteer work in the New York area. They're, that's what they're using, and I and we saw some photos of that. And uh, one of the one of the guys from the floor brought that up, and I think there was kind of a consensus. Yeah, that's um, a good alternative for the volunteers to use those inexpensive face shields. Better than it, right, better, which will give you blast protection and respiratory protection at the same time. So that's something to consider. You know, another thing that I thought Pete nailed earlier in the conference, I just want to bring it up now because Mike brought it up earlier, is drying, and that's. It's been emphasized here, but nobody gave numbers until one of the presentations brought up the FEMA numbers for what is dry, you know, what is wet, what is dry, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but the other government officials were alerted to the fact that, hey, you have a, a FEMA yeah. above. Well, let, let, well, let me let me comment on that. That, that. that was the mitigation assessment team that, that, that Cliff was involved with um, after Katrina. And what came out of that was some useful information that the, the, the assessment team really put a lot of emphasis on having FEMA take a stand that it, you gotta, if you're going to tell people to dry, you have to tell them, well, what to dry to. So they came up with numbers that were, weren't perfect, but they were acceptable, like in this 15 to 17 range, which is kind of the high end of, of normal timber in kind of a moist environment or in the summer in these, in these uh, you know, uh, coastal regions. But one of the other reasons was that in order to verify, you had to have an instrument. And the discussion was, well, people are not going to go out and spend hundreds of dollars for instruments that the professionals will use. He said, you can get cheap instruments for about 20 bucks that will give slight readings, qualitative um, uh, readings at that 17 or so. So at least if it's still beeping, you know, when it doesn't beep, they know that it's in the range. And that was doable. So I had brought this up um, to the gentleman, uh, Chris, from uh, New York City. I said, Chris, you know, you guys are, are – are talking about uh, emphasizing the drying, but you're not giving any guidance. And he said, well, you know, there's a little bit of a variance, and we're not sure. I said, but FEMA already has those numbers out there. I said, you can quote the FEMA numbers, it's fe the federal numbers that have been out since Katrina. So he said, well, you know, maybe we'll look into that. But uh, to me, you can't just tell people to dry something if you don't let them know what the goal is and then how to get there. It has to be useful and, uh, and inexpensive. And so for $20 at Home Depot, you know, most people can afford that, and at least that gives them some bearing. Um, so anyway. All right, thank you, Pete. Let's let's go to the big, you know, the big thing in the media, mold. Okay, Every, molds everywhere in New York, and I I'm not out in the streets. I'm not out on these projects. Mike, let's start with you. Is there as much mold as is being portrayed in the media in these homes that were damaged after Sandy? Yeah, uh, yeah, and there's going to be more as we go on because the houses aren't getting dry. Uh, most of the you know food that mold likes to digest quickly and easily is being torn out. You know, uh, sheetrock's gone and the carpeting's gone and, you know, uh, porous materials are gone. So now we're left with plywood, which isn't too bad when it gets wet. I mean, that can be cleaned. That can be foamed. 
Okay. Uh, you're left with wood studs, uh, which are, you know, I like wood. I'm a big fan of wood, you know, wall assemblies. They can, you know, it's a surface phenomenon there. Um, what we're talking about, though, you know, again, is damp environments. That's the current thinking. If you have mold growth, you're going to have insects, you're going to have vermin, you're going to have uh, bacteria, you know, protozoans, all that stuff. So, um, you know, once, once we dry, then we can start to rebuild. But what I'm seeing, the problem is we're not drying, and then they're already, I've already seen one house where they rebuild and there's mold on the brand-new sheetrock that they put back because the, wood, uh, the water wicked from the damp sill plate into the sheetrock. And so, uh, you know, bottom line, and I'm not, this is no revelation to anybody, no water, no mold. So we got to get rid of the water if we're worried about mold. Tom, what do you say? Um, one thing was curious, this is the first time I've seen ocean water impact our area. I'm used to dealing with uh, pipe leaks or roof leaks, which is fresh water. Uh, when we originally responded to some of the schools, even after a week or two after the flood, um, not seeing mold was a surprise to me in some cases where uh, the salt water may have uh, impeded the growth of the mold. I think that was one of my philosophies, and then a lot of other people have mentioned that here as well. Uh, but now it's a time where it's several months after the flood, and the wood is there's there's buildings that are still wet out there. Those are getting moldy. You know, the wood, I see a lot of mold right now on uh, wood framing that's uh, still wet. So. Originally, I was surprised not to see so much mold, but I see mold growing. And I think more is, more is to come. Uh, with the temperature increase coming in the next few months, uh, you're going to see uh, mold um, cultivate or activate uh, with the warmer temperature. Right now, the colder temperature is keeping it under control, but things are still wet. And things might get even worse with uh, mold growth. Can I ask both you and, and Mike a question? Do both of you have like a backlog or, or waiting list of people that are waiting for your services that you haven't got to yet? Uh, we have. We had. A, I'm finally catching up right now, and my services. Uh, we could schedule uh, new projects at this point. Uh, we've been going nonstop since it happened until a couple of weeks ago. What about you, Mike? Do you have a backlog of people waiting for your services? Yeah, uh, and it's it's not critical now because. You know, if it's already moldy, if I don't get there tomorrow, right. how much worse is it going to get? But, uh, yeah, we get probably a couple calls a day and maybe 10 to 12 a week. And uh, so I'm probably booked maybe maybe a month in advance right now. But it's easy. You know, my inspections don't take that long. So I can hit three or four houses a day. You know, I'm going to go in and I'm going to say, okay, yeah, there's mold there. Yeah, you're still wet. So we got to get smart guys in to deal with it, and then we'll move you know, right on down the line. There's, there's people waiting to find out what they're going to do with their home. They don't want to spend time on mold cleaning exactly. up now if they're going to demo the house and raise it. So there's a lot of people in limbo right now, even friends of mine in my town. Um, I'm helping them with some free advice on my own time on weekends, doing inspections or moisture readings. But um, there's a lot of people that just don't have the money. They don't know what to do. They're waiting to hear from the insurance company, and they're waiting to hear from the code officials on whether or not they need to raise up their house or not. And yeah, and FEMA. Uh, this is a, something that I was a little bit shocked by, and that is that a lot of these homes are going to have to be raised up, I guess, to to meet code or 
to meet the flood zone codes for the to get insurance to get insurance, and that insurance may well be unaffordable for a lot of people, and so they're caught in a catch twenty two. Uh, do I have enough money to get my home to the point where insurance is a little less? I assume it's based on on how high your home is. Can you tell, can you one of you guys explain a little bit about that for us? FEMA's going to tell you how high you have to put up your house based on probably they don't know yet. I don't think they they're probably still. Uh, massaging the data they got from Sandy, you know, and the high water marks and levels and all that. Uh, but uh, in a lot of the towns I'm working in, they are going to have to raise the house X feet. They're going to have to, uh, depending on how much the house is impacted, they're going to have to bring everything up to current code. If it's more than 50% of, you know, reconstruction, they're going to have to bring it up to current code. Uh, if it's less than 50%, it's going to, you know, renovation code. Uh, so I can foresee a lot of people just saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to self-insure, I'm not, you know, flood insurance, and whatever happens, happens. Paul, same thing. I, I haven't really seen too many houses being raised right now. Yeah. I, I know of one in Monmouth Beach that I drive by once in a while, and uh, they're raising their house maybe six, seven feet. Uh, it all depends on the zones. Is it a B zone or zone A? Sorry, I'm losing my voice now. Tom's having a uh, what is it? Rubio moment here. We gotta get a, a, a little bit of glass, a little bit of water. No problem. Now, but then the flood insurance is optional unless you have a mortgage, and a mortgage company may require that flood insurance. Is that accurate? Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is another variable that's coming into play here, and it's it's one that is. Uh, I think in some cases may be insurmountable for some people. And, and let me get this other uh, impression that people have about people who live on the shore. Are these all wealthy people that live on the shore? Uh, is this a mis <coughs> uh, misguided impression that we have with these folks? Okay. Yeah, there, there's houses that have been in families uh, for generations. Okay. And, you know, they're... Uh, what makes them valuable is the fact they're on the shore, and you know, what's valuable is the property they sit on, not necessarily the houses. But uh, Lavalette has, you know, little shacks that were, they're not shacks, but the little bungalows, you know, a kitchen, a couple bedrooms, a little living area, and, uh, you know, maybe a thousand square feet or less. And, uh, you know, what, what a lot of guys are doing, you know, I could see people with a lot of money coming in and buying land cheap and tearing these houses down and building very nice houses and uh, doing quite well for themselves. Uh, but, you know, the, there's a lot of houses that just have been there generation, and they're worth a lot of money now. And they they might have been bought in the 50s for a 1000 bucks, you know. Uh, but there's also next door to them was somebody that sold a little bungalow, and there's a two-story house that's probably $2 million. Let me ask one quick question of both of you and then I want to get your comments on the medical issues that have come up because I I was a little uh, I was a little surprised by the fact that there doesn't seem to be much contention over the fact that the mold and the biological growth and the filth in these homes causes health problems and in the past we've seen that we're, we're Katrina it was like no it doesn't you know some people contended basically it does not cause health problems. Now it seems to be an accepted fact that it causes respiratory problems at least. And maybe maybe more, but we're still working on that. 
but before we do that, I, I do want to make sure that I ask this question. We spent a lot of money, apparently, and, and there were a lot of resources. Mike, you mentioned it once. I just want to make sure I get this right. Why didn't these homes dry? It's dry. The air is dry. It's, it's wintertime. They didn't dry because? Uh, vapor pressure issues. At cold temperatures, the vapor pressure of the water is real low. Uh, the homes that I'm working on are homes that had, you know, the folks put the wrong kind of drying equipment in there. They put, you know, dehumidifiers in there, uh, either, you know, a desiccant or refrigerant dehumidifiers. But if there's not a lot of moisture in the air to dry, they're not going to work. Uh, refrigerants won't work below 45, 40 degrees anyway. They'll freeze up. Um, so you need heat. Heat in conjunction with these dehumidifiers will work nicely, and then you can, you know, use some fans as well. But, you know, to dry things, you have to heat them up. You have to coax the water out of the wood and out of whatever materials you're trying to dry. Get that pound water out of there. Tom, anything you want to add on that? You know, the main thing is that people forget that this category, three waters, contaminated water, and uh, not, it's not just a mold issue. There's pesticides, oils, bacteria, and pathogens in that water. Um, so I always advise to people, make sure you clean, disinfect, and then start the drying process before you put any fans on. Make sure that place is clean and washed down first. And then use heat and air and uh, dehumidifiers and fans at the same time. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I just want to pipe in real quick. Uh, Mike, go ahead. We don't, you know, tell people to dry anything unless, until it's clean and you've killed all the uh, weebies associated with the flood water. You, know, you don't need to dry materials you're going to tear out of there. Okay. So there's the time and a place to dry. Okay. Great. Cliff, anything you want to add? I, 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 I think there is. I think one of the things that um, I think was uh, an aha moment uh, for me at, at this particular event was a presentation that uh, Dr. Mori gave. Okay. And in this presentation, he uh, highlighted uh, different terminology that was found in reports and different interpretations of, of sampling and, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, I think oftentimes in our industry, the fact that someone has uh, a PhD after their name means that they are impeccable and invincible and that, uh, they're never going to make a mistake. And uh, it was just something to think about that, you know, maybe you know, the consultant may really not be the smartest guy on the job site, you know. That's only true for CIHs, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think it's time for us to go to our roundup. We've got about 10 minutes left in the show. Uh, Val, you want to kick it into the roundup? Yeah, it's quite, absolutely. Quite a few. Plus, 
special guest. That's right. All right, let's let's go around one time here. Pete, any final comments? Yeah, a um, couple things. I the uh, I, one of the things that was kind of a surprise to me. I was ha- happy surprised was to see the OSHA people here because you know. Growing up in the industry, I always kind of thought, well, OSHA's enforcement and NIOSH, you know, under CDC, they were more of the helpful because they were non-regulatory. But OSHA now, uh, one gentleman, Martin Davis, who, uh, uh, I mean, Patricia Jones was the area director that I think gave a really wonderful presentation. And uh, then Martin Davis was on on that remediation panel yesterday. Uh, He's a compliance assistant specialist. He used to be a regulatory guy, but now he isn't. So basically, a lot of people are not aware of this, that if you reach out to OSHA, they'll want to help you. It's not that they want just want to turn you in. And, you know, they want the guys who are really violating the law and aren't doing stuff. It's those are the guys who know it, knowingly do it intentionally, that's different. But there's many people who just need the help. So that, that was a kind of enlightening. He, the one thing he mentioned, and this ties into this, the respirator discussion, he put out a very key point yesterday. He said, look, Having a respirator also has risk involved, and the OSHA standard says that the, the use of respirators should be considered after looking after all en- uh, other engineering controls, and that if you give a respirator to the wrong guy, he's not trained, he's not uh, tested, uh, medically tested, he said it actually could do harm. And uh, so I think that's important. That just giving respirators without training, I think that's a, um, an important point, that there needs to be training with the respirators, not don't just give them out, even in the N95s. Um, and... Uh, I also did ask uh, Eckert and Chin, I asked about the proceedings because they had made some comments. I said, uh, uh, when are the proceedings going to be available for the conference? And he said, since this conference was put together so quickly, they really didn't have a chance to do the proper uh, peer review of all the information. So uh, it's my understanding, talking to both Chin and Eckert, that the organizing committee will be reviewing all of the proceedings, and then the proceedings will be published later and become available not only to the participants, but a lot of times with these conferences, they make them available in general. And I think that it gives them an opportunity to make sure that the information is technically sound, scientifically sound, and, you know, there's no commercial, you know, uh, promotions in there, which they, they really frown upon. Um, so anyway, I, I think they do a terrific job with that. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to see the finished proceedings. Because there's just too much information to uh, yeah. to take notes, and you know the speakers have limited time, so it's, it should be good. So, would all the listeners and everyone out there uh, pay attention to that? Because they normally make those proceedings available at a very reasonable price for people that couldn't come here, and there's really some terrific information uh, that will be out in the papers and proceedings. So. And we will be following up on that. Let's see, Mike. Any any thoughts for you? Final thoughts on the roundup or any comments? Um, yeah, just uh, the. The coolest thing for me at this conference was seeing a lot of my old buddies that I haven't seen in a while, and seeing a lot of the uh, you know the superstars of indoor air quality like Phil Morey and Dr. Johanning and Harriet Amon and all those kinds of folks, and hanging out with my buddies and having Pete Consigli uh, orchestrate our dinner last night just like the old days, take jars and we had a wonderful Italian dinner and. Uh, you know, and how to open the menu. Yeah. Well, we'll be back. Jersey will be back. Uh, you know, there's going to be lessons learned. We're never going to be able to, you know, properly deal with anything, any storm of this magnitude. But if we can get the information out to the homeowners and to the folks in the DIYs, and if if the media would, again, give as much attention to the post-storm activities and uh, what's going on and, you know, not just show pictures of mold and talk about Sandy Cough, but... You know, don't talk about the problems. Tell me about the solutions, and it will be a lot better approach to things. So that that's my parting comments here. And uh, thanks, Joe and uh, Clark.
Cliff, and it's always awesome to see you guys. Right. My buddy Tom here, and my compadre Pete over there. It's, it's fabulous. So thanks for letting me uh, share a few minutes here. Good to have you. We're going. We're still, we got about five minutes. We're going to bring Doctor Wow on in just a moment. Tom, any final thoughts from you? We may go around a little bit more, but just wanted to give you one last chance to add anything. You were. I think it was a good symposium. It was great to have it here in New Jersey at the Sea View. What a great location it was. A uh, good mix of people in the presentations and a good mix of people in the audience to talk to, yeah. as well as some of the few vendors that were here. Uh, good conversations going on behind the doors of the presentation itself. All right, let's get the good doctor on. Val. Yeah, hi there. Good day to everybody. Hello, <clears throat> Yeah, well, it's uh, kind of interesting, and uh, there are a couple of points uh, that I would like to emphasize. First of all, I don't think you should be surprised if you go to a Dr. Johanning uh, uh, um, symposium that we talk about molds. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, if, if General Motors were to sponsor, sponsor something, I have the suspicion that you would see a lot of General Motors products. <laughs> okay, that's well. That's you neat. always bring it back to earth. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, it is the fungal research group. <laughs> hey, that's right. I mean, you know, if you go to a dental con convention, you don't hear anything about brain surgery. <laughs> um, but uh, there are a couple of good points for me. I am I'm one of the oldest guys who really got started with safety equipment. I remember when there was only one type of safety, a pair of safety glasses available. They were terrible. They weighed a half a pound. They were rolling off your nose and so on. But I'm glad to see, I'm glad to see that today, however the people learned it, uh, they take safety a little bit more seriously than they did 50 years ago. Uh, I remember when the first seat belts came out. No, I'm not going to wear them. And I heard that one guy who, who wore seat belt, one out of a million, he couldn't get out of the car when the car caught fire. I don't even. I wasn't there. I don't know. I heard that. Uh, I was around when the first uh, airbags came out. The only, the, I think, the first one was Mercedes. You had to buy a fifty thousand dollar car to be safe. Yeah, <laughs> not a good idea. Yeah. But things have changed, and right there, I think, is also something with this damn news media. Yeah, good news are lousy news. People want to see, yeah, blood. And, uh, you know, the maniac uh, raped a two-year-old girl and fed her, uh, ate half of it and fed the rest of his dogs. You know, I mean, <laughs> this is ridiculous. And I think they could do a much better job. And I said, hey, all you poor guys over there, under Sandy and so on, here are a couple of things you ought to remember. You know, you've got to have a drive before you redo it. Well, we said that today three times. On one of the previous shows, I said that also here in Carnegie, it's now five, six years ago we had a flood, and I was literally the only one around with a moisture meter, and I went in there, and I had a couple of friends, and I said, hey, keep it open, dry it, and I mean, it was nasty here, it was nasty, and 
there was the little old lady, and she said, I'm sick and tired to be in my kitchen with the walls open, and I called the contractor, and I told him, yeah, put the drywall up, hopefully not Chinese one, and um, <laughs> uh, paint the thing, and I'm sick and tired of it, which he did, as he was told. But he was a drywaller. He didn't have a moisture meter. He looked and said, ah, it looks pretty good. Yeah, what the heck? Yeah, two weeks later, they had to rip it out. <laughs> and we had to start all over again. Uh, yeah, I, I like it. And, well, with these respirators, this is really a tricky, tricky thing. Now, if I have a volunteer, and the volunteer is not a cardiac patient, and has emphysema or something like, or lung cancer, I think if we slap on, and I'm not saying that this is a good practice, if we slap on an N95 respirator, I don't think we do a heck of a lot of harm. Uh, and on the other, I, I rather protect the lungs during these types of operations. We heard about fungi and and uh, bacteria and, and, and any other nasty things that are there. And I'm all for uh, wearing uh, eye protection, but yeah, where do we get the PAPA, the powered air purifying respirator? Yeah, they are, they are quite a bit of money. Uh, they, you, they, they need maintenance. We should have uh, fit testing. Uh, they have to be recharged. I mean, there is maintenance on those. Uh, does a, a volunteer who, who tries, who is really a nice guy or a girl who wants to help, well, he doesn't know how to take care of that. Well, that was something they brought up. They saw people wearing, you know, respirators upside down, and uh, they they were on the side of their face, and uh, there were a lot of uh, cigarettes and things like that. You know, the, there was a problem with educating people. Yep. I thought Clinton well, had a good idea. If the manufacturers put some little uh, an arrow on there, an arrow on the, you know, on the, the side up. People yeah. don't read directions, but if you put um, some pictures on there about the right, right way to wear the respirator might, you know, might help. I think many of them uh, 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 do that. And again, I said that during one of the previous shows, we teach uh, CPR in uh, schools. We have school nurses. Uh, do we have any, any, in any one of the courses do we talk about safety, respirators, hard hats, steel-toed shoes, uh, uh, gloves, safety glasses, respirators. Uh, I don't think it hurts anybody who is 10 or 12 or 15 years old to hear about it. On the contrary. Oh, there's something available. Many people don't know, and therefore they are, A, afraid of it, or if you don't know it, you don't say, well, I don't know. I didn't know it. there is something called a respirator. God forbid uh, you have to have a... N90 or 95 or N100. Right, Dieter. Oh, okay. Yep. And anything else, Dieter, before we wrap it up here? Uh, well, no. I, 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 as I said, I think, I think a lot of good points were, uh, what I call, uh, common sense uh, uh, comments were made, and I like this. I said, hey guys, this is not necessarily something that only doctors. And, and, and PhDs and, 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 and scientists know, there are a couple of things that anybody can grasp that is, you know, who has a little bit of common sense and has said, hey, guys, this is the way to do it, and uh, should be the, the volunteers. 
Should we give them a 20-minute introduction? Might be a good idea. Well, they, they're getting some, but probably not enough. Uh, but, Dieter, thanks a lot. Always a pleasure having you join us. Okay. Uh, uh, pleasure, and hello to everybody, and uh, I will be here next week. All right, Dieter. I'll see you, Dieter. talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Before we go, I want to mention there were some great medical presentations here. We had, as Mike mentioned, Harriet Amon was here. We had Gene Cox Ganser here. There were several MDs here, Dr. Johanning. Uh, Chin Yang. Chin Yang was here. There was another MD or two. Oh, we, we met a couple of interesting MDs as well that were in the, uh, in the, in the audience, and uh, it was a fascinating presentation on that. We didn't get a chance to go into it very much, but... That will be in the proceedings. Grab those proceedings, and we'll be bringing a few of those folks on. Uh, we, we've got an op doc, uh, occupational doctor that we talked to that we're going to bring on on a future show. The other thing is uh, there were a couple of nice presentations. For instance, a uh, gentleman by the name of Dr. Ralph Moon, who was on a previous show, did a presentation on the, um, the effects of salt water versus fresh water on you know, things like a nail uh, holding into a piece of wood. Uh, so the structural integrity and the integrity of wood products, et cetera, that was interesting information, and they do a lot of very interesting uh, research with his group. Um, also want to mention that uh, some, some contractors were here doing a little presentation on, uh, you know, things on how to, how to uh, do the, the Sandy solution, the Pittsburgh Protocol, whatever you want to call it, um, sure, you know, sure. the Jersey Shore Shake, whatever it is today, uh, Shuffle, I'm sorry, the Jersey Shore Shuffle. Uh, Bob Crowell's out doing a presentation now. Bob does a, a great job. He's also a very entertaining speaker. So we had some great people. I just wanted to make sure I brought that up before we go. Can I have Final a comment from the – yeah. I want to add on that, the, the, the gentleman from URS who was giving, talking about the FEMA stuff said that there's, FEMA's getting ready to publish some information on these uh, uh, moisture-resistant and um, um, uh, cleanability-resistant uh, materials that's funded by, uh, you know, the manufacturers, uh, uh, Georgia Pacific, you know, Gypsum, you know, the whole warehouse or all of those, that uh, they've done some testing on uh, uh, different contaminants and also moisture-resistant to the materials. So there'll be some of that. There'll be new information that'll be published. At, so when these homes are rebuilt, they'll uh, be more resistant for both cleanability and uh, also for moisture. The other thing that I also did find uh, is um, there's a resurgence. And Cliff and me go way back in the day where, uh, but this, this the foam application, the, um, the fogging, you know, there's some fogging application, coating application. There's some new suppliers, new people entering the industry. And uh, this is a good thing because there's more activity, there's more competition, and it's creating a greater awareness. I think the coating, in Mike's presentation, it's kind of the coating is in addition to. You know, there were some presenters who were saying, well, you don't need to clean and dry, you can just put coatings. You know, we know right. that, that that's not it. But it is in addition to if people have the money um, and want additional protection. So I think talking about coatings also do additional protection, I think, is a good thing. But it's good to see this resurgence clip that uh, stuff that we knew 20, 30 years ago now is coming back in a different form. And, uh, you know, I think at the, those of you that will be at the REA shows and REA members, I think you'll start to see some new suppliers and some new products that people will be coming to our shows. You know, that you take a look at it. Maybe it will fit into, you know, some of your operations and offer some, some extra options to your customers. It's a great point, Pete. They, they did, there was a lot of discussion of, 
building back with materials that won't get moldy because, they, let's face it, a lot of these homes are in areas where we're going to have more storms. And uh, so hopefully if we build back the right way with the right materials, we won't have the same problems we've had here. Anything else, guys? Uh, Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we go? Uh, no. All right. <laughs> thank you all. I just want to say thanks so much to today's guest. Uh, we've got Mike McGinnis again. We've got Tom Peter. We've got the, the global industry watchdog, Pete Consigli, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Thanks to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. And, Val, you held down the fort. Thank you so much. Back at the controls. Sure, no problem. <laughs> uh, great job. Hopefully it all came out clear. We'll talk to you after the show. Thanks again, everyone. Please come back and join us next Friday for the next and most importantly, great group of listeners on Almost Forgot. Thanks for joining us. Please come back next week and join us for the next episode of IAQ Radio. IAQ Radio Production. 